Hi, welcome to A Minder and our last episode for July 2021. That is research papers published on Alzheimer's disease in July. And today's episode is on the prevention and intervention strategies for Alzheimer's disease. We have 17 papers to go through. I am your host. My name is Nyla and I'll be right back after this quick introduction. Welcome to A Minder a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Before I get started on the papers today, I have an exciting update from the Aminder team. This is maybe something you've heard if you've been listening to our recent episodes, but if not, Aminder just received sponsorship from the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging. Our podcast not only takes a lot of time and energy to produce, but it also has uh, quite a few costs, so that includes equipment, conference registrations from time to time, um, a hosting platform for our podcast, and several other hidden costs. So we're very thankful for this financial support. You will be hearing more about the CCNA throughout our episodes and what they do, and we'll make sure to note when a paper has research that was funded by the CCNA. All right, so I said there were 17 papers today. Specifically, we have seven papers on cognitive training and complementary therapies for AD or Alzheimer's. We have two papers on diet. Then we'll have a quick break before we launch into five papers on exercise and four papers on stimulation and neuromodulatory techniques. And before I launch into all of these papers, a quick reminder that what we do at Aminder is a summary of all of the new research papers that appear on PubMed. Um, That is all papers pertaining to Alzheimer's disease and dementia that fit our inclusion criteria. We do not make any call on the quality of the paper, nor do we launch into a critique of them, so it's up to you to follow up on any research that you're interested in. We'll make that easy for you by providing a bibliography. I have numbered the papers throughout and will be giving all of the relevant information so that you can find it again easily. Okay, Without further ado, let's launch into cognitive training and complementary therapies. So these next four papers are on training to prevent cognitive decline or to improve memory loss. And the first one makes use of virtual reality, or VR, which is increasingly applied in health research for cognitive training and for rehabilitation purposes. So the title of this paper is Effects of Virtual Reality-Based Cognitive Training in the Elderly with and Without Mild Cognitive Impairment. The first author is Maeng, the last author is Cho, This was published in Psychiatry Investigation, and the research is coming from a couple different universities in the Republic of Korea. The authors tested the effects of a four-week-long, fully immersive VR cognitive training on 31 individuals with mild cognitive impairment, so that's MCI, and 25 cognitively normal elderly individuals. Participants underwent eight sessions over the four weeks, and the program's safety, accessibility, and effects on cognition were tested afterwards. When compared to baseline measures, the authors observed improved cognition in both groups following the training, specifically in the ability to learn new information, in visuospatial components, and in frontal lobe function, though you'll have to check the paper for details on how exactly they measured that. 
The program also showed a progressive reduction of discomfort, presumably due to the initial disorienting effects of using VR, perhaps for the first time. They conclude that VR-based cognitive training could help improve cognition in elderly populations with or without MCI. Next up, we have a paper on home-based computerized programs, which could be easier to adapt to the individual needs of patients. Paper 2 is published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Baishan or Baishan and last author Evley. This is coming from the University of Leicester and the University of Nottingham in the UK and the title is Qualitative Analysis of the Cognition and Flow or the COGFLOWS study. An individualized approach to cognitive training for dementia is needed. As you just heard in the title, this is a qualitative study, so you won't be hearing about specific cognitive outcome measures here. Instead, this study reports on the feasibility of a randomized controlled trial on a cognitive training program for healthy controls and for people with MCI or dementia. The authors conducted semi-structured interviews with 37 of the trial participants after the 12-week cognitive training program, and caregivers were included as well where possible. The responses were condensed into five themes, benefits, barriers, threat, self-efficacy, and cues to action. Based on the interviews, the authors found that the training was feasible and acceptable, with benefits including enjoyment, improved awareness, benchmarking cognitive function, reassurance of abilities, and giving back control. However, they also found barriers, particularly for people with dementia, such as problems with technology, frustration, conflict between patients and carers, apathy and lack of insight, anxiety or low mood, and a lack of portability. Check the paper for more details, but one more crucial finding that emerged, as the title suggests, is the need for an individualized approach to training that takes into consideration the participants' baseline characteristics. Since we've already shifted away from talking about cognitive outcome measures, let's spend some time on quality of life. This is something we don't talk about much on this podcast, but it's a really important thing to consider when developing interventions, because what's the point in improving cognition or other health outcomes if it negatively impacts the patient's quality of life? Coming at you from first author Velasen Rueda and last author Carvalho, and this is from the Catholic University of Avila and Bridgewater State University, paper three is entitled... Improvement of the Quality of Life in Aging by Stimulating Autobiographical Memory, and this was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. This paper reports on the implementation of a positive reminiscence program, which they call REMPOS, which is a cognitive therapy program that was previously developed and tested in a Spanish sample. The authors tested the effects of this training on quality of life in institutionalized older adults with normal cognition, MCI, or AD, using a randomized Design with pre- and post-measures. Over a three-month period, they compared the experimental groups who received the training to control groups who underwent regular daily institutional programming with cognitive stimulation techniques. You'll have to check the paper for sample sizes and the details of the interventions and also the outcome measures, but what I can tell you is that the REMPOS intervention increased cognitive function in all groups, and in terms of quality of life, it decreased depressive symptoms and evoked more positive memories, but interestingly, this was not the case in the MCI group. The findings support beneficial effects of reminiscence therapy both on cognition and mood. Sticking with quality of life, paper 4 reports on a protocol for an upcoming randomized controlled trial 
This paper is published in JMIR Research Protocols, and the title is A Randomized Control Trial Investigating the Feasibility of a Low-Intensity Psychological Intervention for Fear of Memory Loss and Quality of Life in Older Adults, Protocol for the Reducing Fear and Avoidance of Memory Loss Study, or the Reframe Study. This is by three first authors equally contributing, so that is O'Loughlin, Pavithra, and Reagan. And the last author is Farina, and this is from the Trinity College Dublin in Ireland. As you may know, or perhaps experience yourself, many people fear dementia and memory loss, and this fear is actually associated with poorer health outcomes and well-being in older adults. The authors present their protocol for determining the feasibility of a tailored web-based mindfulness program targeted at older adults experiencing heightened fear of memory loss, and the goal is to look at whether this increases quality of life. They will recruit 80 participants and will divide them into two groups. Both will receive psychoeducation and mindfulness training, but one group will additionally receive modules targeting maladaptive behavioral avoidance, so that is things like social and cognitive withdrawal. The authors predict better outcomes for the second group as they argue that maladaptive behavioral avoidance strategies underlie the psychosocial dysfunction associated with fear of memory loss. Stay tuned for the results, maybe even in an upcoming episode. It appears that mindfulness and quality of life were on the minds of a lot of researchers this summer, because that's also the subject of this next paper, number five, which is entitled, Study of the Effects of Mindfulness Training on Quality of Life of Patients with Alzheimer's Disease and Their Caregivers. This is the Dyad Mindfulness Project. It has three authors, that is Vespa, Fabietti, and Giulietti. This is coming from the Italian National Institute of Health and Science on Aging, and it was published in Aging Clinical and Experimental Research. This study also reports on an upcoming trial, which will investigate whether mindfulness training could improve mood, well-being, and cognitive performance in people with early-stage AD and their caregivers. AD dyads, that is, patient-caregiver pairs, will be randomly assigned to receive six months of mindfulness training or to form the control group, which isn't specified in the abstract. The authors list a bunch of outcome measures, including quality of life, well-being, depression, cognition, caregiver burden, which will be assessed at baseline and at the end of the one-year intervention, as well as at 6 and 12 months after the intervention. So this sounds really interesting, but I guess you'll have to wait a few years for the results of the study. I find that studies that include the effects on informal caregivers, so that is family members and friends, to be especially pertinent, as dementia impacts way more people than the person experiencing it. Although this topic has mostly been left to the social sciences, I think health researchers are increasingly taking note of how important it is to consider caregivers in interventions for AD. Paper 6 does just that. This one is coming from Aksare University in Turkey, and it was published in Psychogeriatrics by first author Asiret and last author Kassar. And the title of paper 6 is Investigation of the Effects of Interventions Made According to the Progressively Lowered Stress Threshold Model on the Care Outcomes of Alzheimer Patients and Their Families, a Randomized Clinical Trial. So this is a randomized controlled trial that investigated whether interventions based on the 
progressively lowered stress threshold, or the PLST model, can improve care burden, care satisfaction, and life satisfaction of caregivers tending to middle and advanced stage Alzheimer's disease patients. While the intervention primarily targeted caregivers, the authors simultaneously examined the effects on the neuropsychiatric symptoms and agitation levels of the patients themselves. The research was conducted on a total of 29 caregivers, 15 of which received the intervention, and the rest were placed in a control group. Please check the paper for details on the intervention itself, which included three home visits and face-to-face training over 12 weeks, and on the outcome measures as well. You can find those in the paper. The primary findings were that the PLST training decreased behavioral problems in the patients with AD, decreased caregiver burden, and increased their care satisfaction. That said, only the increase in satisfaction was statistically significant when the intervention and control groups were compared. The authors recommend the use of PLST-informed training and interventions for AD patients and their caregivers. We've been subtly moving away from cognitive training programs and into other complementary therapies. The last paper in this category, number 7, is a more drastic shift, as you'll see from the title, which is... Intervention of Companion Clowns in a Special Care Unit, a One-Year Pilot Study. And paper 7 was published in Aging and Clinical Experimental Research by first author de Molion and last author Roland. This is a one-year pilot study coming from the University Hospital of Toulouse in France, which compared behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia in the presence or absence of clowns. So let me explain. 20 patients with dementia residing in a special care unit were visited by a duo of accompanying clowns 24 times for a total of 72 hours. You can check the paper for details of how these sessions were spaced out, but I'll let you know that each one was around three hours and that they were spaced in three separate months of the year. The special care unit was dedicated to residents with severe behavioral and psychological symptoms, and the researchers used a neuropsychiatric inventory to evaluate these symptoms every month. While the total neuropsychiatric inventory scores did not differ between periods in which the clowns visited or did not visit, their presence did seem to specifically affect certain symptoms. So when the clowns were visiting and when there were active sessions, the residents had fewer delusions, hallucinations, euphoria, and aberrant motor behavior, but had more depression, apathy, disinhibition, and appetite disorders. So the clowns might have been beneficial for certain behavioral symptoms, but not for others. And our lab actually also has some work on therapeutic clowns, so... The lab that I'm in, uh, Dr. Stephanie blaine Morais's lab at McGill, does a lot of work on disorders of consciousness and work with non-communicative individuals. And there is some ongoing work in our lab about whether the presence of therapeutic clowns can be arouse a response in people in comas or in low communicative states, whether it can be therapeutic, and whether if we record EEG activity and turn it into music that the clowns then respond to, whether that can also alter brain activity and state of arousal. Okay, that was a bit of a detour, but we are done with our cognitive training and complementary therapy section and on to a couple papers on diet. So diet is a lifestyle factor that comes up fairly often, both in predicting dementia risk, so those are my B1 episodes which you may have listened to before, and in the prevention and intervention of Alzheimer's. 
So paper eight compares two diets as indicated in the title, which is Mediterranean and Western diet effects on Alzheimer's disease biomarkers, cerebral perfusion, and cognition in midlife, a randomized trial. This is by first author Hoshite and last author Kraft, and this is primarily from Wake Forest School of Medicine and was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. So Western diet usually refers to high intake of red meat, dairy, and high fat and processed foods, whereas the Mediterranean diet is characterized by whole grains, fruits, and vegetables, some fish, and olive oil. In this study, 56 participants with normal cognition and 31 with MCI received diets that were equal in calories, but were either high or low in saturated fat, glycemic index, and sodium. So you can probably guess which one is which, but the high fat, sugar, and sodium was the Western diet. The participants were on this diet for four weeks, and the authors assessed the effects on cerebrospinal biomarkers as well as cerebral perfusion. The results were quite interesting. In terms of biomarkers, amyloid beta 42 to 40 ratios increased following the Mediterranean diet and decreased following the Western diet for cognitively normal participants, but the opposite pattern was observed in the MCI group. The MCI group also showed diet-specific differences in total tau and in amyloid beta 42 over tau. You can check the paper for those details and a couple more results. The authors conclude that the response to diet in middle age could highlight early pathophysiological changes that increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And in case you're not familiar with AD biomarkers, so amyloid beta 42 and amyloid beta 40, tau and phosphorylated tau are some of the main ones that come up, and we've got a few episodes dedicated to just that topic. This next paper is specifically on Greek olive oil and some complex EEG measures. So the title of paper number nine says it all. It is Greek high phenolic early harvest extra virgin olive oil reduces the overexcitation of information flow based on dominant coupling mode model in patients with mild cognitive impairment, an EEG resting state validation approach. This paper was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Dimitriadis and the last author is Tsoulaki and... Perhaps unsurprisingly, this is coming from a university in Greece, so the Aristotle University of Thessaloniki. I'm going to try to unpack this one as best as I can. So the authors compared the effects of Greek high phenolic early harvest extra virgin olive oil to moderate phenolic oil and the Mediterranean diet intervention. This was in 43 participants with MCI, and they were testing whether these would differentially affect spontaneous EEG dynamic connectivity, that is, a measure of the information flow between brain areas and across time. So the participants underwent an EEG resting state recording before and after treatment, and the authors built a functional connectivity graph using their dominant coupling mode model. Please check the paper for the specifics, as this is far from my specialty. I'll keep the results simple. The high phenolic oil intervention decreased the overexcitation of information flow in spontaneous brain activity, and it also changed the signal spectrum of the recorded EEG rhythms. All right, I will let you digest that over a quick break, and then I'll be back for some papers on exercise. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know A-Minder is recruiting. 
If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome back, and let's jump straight into exercise. We'll start off this section with a couple papers in animal models. So the first one is paper 10. The title is Treadmill Exercise Overcomes Memory Deficits Related to Synaptic Plasticity Through Modulating Ionic Glutamate Receptors. The first author is Li, the last author is Xu, and this is from the East China Normal University and was published in Behavioral Brain Research. If you're new to Alzheimer's research, you've probably already heard about amyloid beta pathology and aggregation, but you may not have heard about the role of ionic glutamate receptors. So these might be altered in Alzheimer's due to amyloid beta activity or other disease mechanisms, which then leads to synaptic loss and neuronal death. If you're interested in this, check out some of our previous episodes on synaptic transmission. The last one was hosted by Glory just a couple weeks back. Anyway, in this study, the authors investigate whether the beneficial effects of exercise might be tied to changes in ionic glutamate receptors. They used the transgenic APP slash PS1 mouse model, this is a common mouse model of AD, and age-matched littermates, which were wild-type mice, to test the effects of treadmill training for 12 weeks in comparison to a no-exercise control. The exercise improved spatial learning and memory abilities in the transgenic mice, and it decreased hippocampal levels of amyloid beta 40 and 42, as well as amyloid plaque deposition. What's more, the number of synapses in the hippocampal CA1 region were increased following exercise, as was the length and thickness of postsynaptic densities. The authors also report that the transgenic mice had altered levels of synaptic plasticity-related proteins, which were restored following exercise. So overall, the 12-week treadmill running not only reduced amyloid beta and improved cognition, but also improved synaptic structural plasticity and transmission. Let's stick with the same mouse model for the next paper, which looks at the effect of exercise on lysosomal function. Lysosomes normally degrade and clear out damaged proteins, but their dysfunction in AD might contribute to amyloid beta aggregation. Let's see how this connects to exercise with paper 11, which is long-term running exercise alleviates cognitive dysfunction in APPPSEN1 transgenic mice via enhancing brain lysosomal function. The first author is Wang, and the last author is Lin, and this is from Suchow University in China. And this was published in Acta Pharmacologica Sinica. In a previous study, the authors found that long-term running can activate lysosomal function in mice. So in this study, they wanted to see whether this would reduce amyloid beta accumulation in an AD model. The transgenic mice, same as in paper 10, were trained on a running wheel starting at 5 months of age. Their exercise program was quite intensive, with 40 minutes, 6 days a week, and lasting 5 months. The mice were assessed for cognitive function at 9 months of age, and at 10 months, their brain tissue was collected for biochemical analysis. The control group isn't mentioned in the abstract, but the authors report that this long-term exercise significantly improved the cognitive dysfunction seen in these transgenic mice, and it enhanced lysosomal function. And now, for the moment we've been waiting for, it also increased amyloid beta clearance in the brain. But you have to check the paper yourself if you want the juicy mechanistic details. 
Okay, onwards to paper number 12, which looks at exercise in rats instead of transgenic mice. This was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Soares and last author Melo Carpus, and is primarily coming from the Federal University of Pampa in Brazil. And paper 12 is entitled Multi-Component Training Prevents Memory Deficit Related to Amyloid Beta Protein-Induced Neurotoxicity. The authors of this paper tested the effects of multi-component exercise training on memory deficits related to amyloid beta neurotoxicity. In this model, Wister rats received multi-component training before an amyloid beta peptide was infused into the hippocampus, so this paper is looking at preventative effects. And the amyloid beta peptide infusion is also a fairly common model of AD. So rather than being a genetic model, it's inducing it um, through amyloid beta toxicity. The multi-component training included aerobic and anaerobic physical exercise, but it actually also included cognitive exercise. And again, check the paper for details on the study design and the control groups. But the authors report that the training prevented amyloid beta neurotoxicity. That is, it reduced hippocampal lipid peroxidation, it restored antioxidant capacity, and increased glutathione levels. If those terms mean something to you, or if they don't and you would like to learn more, check out some of our previous episodes on metabolic changes related to AD, and of course our episodes on amyloid beta toxicity. Our next paper is on both humans and the transgenic APP-PS1 mouse model. This one looks at changes in microRNA, which could be involved in the beneficial effects of exercise. Specifically, paper 13 is... Exercise-mediated alteration of MIR1925P is associated with cognitive improvement in Alzheimer's disease. The first author is uh, Quinn or Kin, and the last author is Lv. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's LV. And this is coming from the second affiliated hospital of Shandong University of Traditional Chinese Medicine. So this is in China and was published in Neuroimmunomodulation. Okay, I'm going to refer to MIR1925P as the microRNA for simplicity. This study tested 90 patients with AD, half of which accepted to do a cycling training for three consecutive months. Check the paper for details on what the other half did. The authors, using RTQPCR, looked at expression changes in the microRNA before and after exercise, and also conducted a study in 8-month-old mice in parallel. So in the mice, they just had to do 4 weeks of voluntary exercise, which I'm pretty sure means free access to a a treadmill, or a, a running wheel rather. In the human study, the AD patients who underwent exercise had improved cognition and neuropsychiatric scores, which correlated with decreased microRNA in their serum. An improvement in memory was also seen in the mice, as was downregulated microRNA. When the authors overexpressed that same microRNA in the mice, this reversed the neuroprotective effect of exercise and caused an inflammatory response. These findings suggest that the microRNA may be involved in the positive effects of exercise, perhaps by modulating neuroinflammation. 
On to paper number 14, the last one on exercise for today. This is entitled Feasibility of Improving Strength and Functioning and Decreasing the Risk of Falls in Older Adults with Alzheimer's Dementia, a randomized controlled home-based exercise trial. This is by first author César and last author De Andrade at the Federal University of Sao Carlos in Brazil and was published in the Archives of Gerontology and Geriatrics. To test the effects of a home-based program on muscle strength, mobility, and risk fall, 40 older adults with mild to moderate AD were randomly assigned to an intervention or control group. The assessor was blind to condition. The intervention consisted of a 16-week protocol with three 60-minute sessions per week, which were performed at home with a physiotherapist and individualized exercises. The abstract doesn't specify what the control group did, so check the paper for details. Anyway, the intervention did lead to improved muscle strength and reduced risk of falls, whereas the control group had increased risk of falls and scored worse on the activities of daily living questionnaire. There are a few more findings I'm skipping, but essentially the results suggest that home-based physical exercise is an effective strategy for decreasing fall risk and increasing strength and general function in individuals with mild to moderate AD. Okay, we are on to the last four papers. So I just realized I lied when I said we have 17 papers. We actually have 18, but only four more to go. And these ones are on stimulation or neuromodulatory techniques, which is sort of my catch-all category for the more physiological but not pharmacological interventions. So this can be a bit of a hodgepodge, as there are lots of experimental techniques being explored. But if you've listened to my previous prevention and intervention episodes, you'll see that some patterns do emerge. And one of these is photobiomodulation, which is also referred to as low-level laser therapy, and is the topic of paper 15. So number 15 was published in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Yang and last author Zhang, and this is coming from the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta University. And the title is Photobiomodulation Therapy Attenuates Anxious Depressive-Like Behavior in the TGF344 Rat Model. The authors wanted to know whether photobiomodulation treatment could improve anxious depressive-like behavior that is often associated with early stages of AD. They used a new transgenic AD rat model to investigate this, and they divided rats into receiving the two-minute daily photobiomodulation treatment or a sham control treatment. They also had wild-type rats as a control. The experiment lasted from 2 to 10 months of age, at which point rats were tested for learning and memory and anxious depressive-like behavior. The authors also investigated a number of potential underlying mechanisms. So here are some of the main results that they report on. Firstly, the AD rats did not have any spatial memory deficits by 10 months of age. So again, this was a new AD rat model, and it required some characterization, and they don't seem to have memory deficits, at least from what was tested. However, they did presumably have anxious depressive-like behavior because this was alleviated by the light therapy. Photobiomodulation likely worked by suppressing neuroinflammation and oxidative stress, resulting in less neuronal damage, neurodegeneration, and apoptosis. That leads nicely into the next paper, which is on a type of photobiomodulation in humans, namely background transcranial near-infrared stimulation, which has apparently shown promise as a safe, reliable, and effective treatment for some of the cognitive and behavioral symptoms associated with dementia. 
Let's learn more with paper number 16, entitled Gender Differences of Dementia in Response to Intensive, Self-Administered Transcranial and Intraocular Near-Infrared Stimulation. This is by first author Ki and last author Huang from the Baylor Scott White Health and Medical Center in Temple, USA, and was published in Curious. Previous studies on this type of stimulation have not accounted for potential gender or sex differences, which is the topic of this randomized, double-blind, sham-controlled trial. 60 patient caregiver dyads were enrolled and received either a photobiomodulation treatment or a sham. Check the paper for the specifics of the treatment, which included two daily sessions for eight weeks. Neuropsychological tests were conducted at baseline and following treatment, and results were compared between females and males. The light stimulation seemed to improve cognition, with a 20% improvement in mini mental state exam scores, but there were no significant sex differences. You'll have to check the paper for details on the other outcome measures and which ended up being statistically significant. Okay, just two more papers to go. So paper 17 brings us to another type of stimulation, namely transcranial direct current stim, or TDCS, and this is another non-invasive technique that shows a lot of promise. This paper is by first author Gully, last author Notkova, from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine um, in New York, as well as the MJHS Institute of Innovation and Palliative Care. And this was published in Neurodegeneration Disease Management, and the title is Neurostimulation for Cognitive Enhancement in Alzheimer's Disease, the NICE-AD Study, a Randomized Clinical Trial. This abstract was very short and is actually reporting on an upcoming or perhaps ongoing trial, but here are the basics. We're looking at a double-blind randomized trial on 100 older adults with mild to moderate AD, testing whether six months of home-delivered TDCS could improve global cognitive function and a number of more specific psychological outcomes. The TDCS will be delivered over the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and compared to a sham stimulation, and the effects will be examined three months after the stimulation period. Check the paper for the clinical trial identifier if you want to follow up on it. Okay, our last paper is actually not on a stimulation technique, but rather on arousal following sleep, and I had no idea where to fit this paper in, so I'm going to keep this short because it's not completely relevant. It is, however, interesting. So it was published in Science Scientific Reports, and the first author is Devej Mestag, and the last author is Van Kesteren, and this is coming from VU University in Amsterdam, and it is paper 18. Apparently, hibernation causes neurodegeneration-like changes in the brain, which are then completely reversed upon waking up. The authors were interested in this hibernation-induced plasticity and what it might teach us for treating neurodegenerative diseases. They report that hibernation, or they refer to it as torpor, in wild-type mice increases hippocampal long-term potentiation and fear memory, perhaps in part due to mitochondrial reactivation in post-hibernation arousal. They then show that a single torpor and arousal sequence was sufficient to restore contextual fear memory in the APPPS1 mouse model that I mentioned earlier. And that's it for today. I hope you found this episode both useful and accessible, and I'd like to thank everyone who contributed. So that is the whole sorting team who went through all of the papers in July, Marcia who reviewed my script, 
The audio editing was done by Kate L and will be reviewed by Anusha. And Lara did the bibliography for this episode. Our podcast music is by fellow podcast host Anusha Kamesh. You can find her on SoundCloud under her name or at AK Music on YouTube. Just a reminder that we have plenty more episodes to check out, but we also have bibliographies for the papers that we couldn't cover this month. And on that note, we are always looking for more people to join the team so that we can host more episodes and cover more of um, the monthly AD research. So if you'd like to join us, please send us an email with your CV and how you would like to contribute to the team. Otherwise, just please feel free to share our podcast with anyone who might benefit from it and to leave us reviews. We're always happy for your feedback, whether it be in the form of a review, an email, or a little message on social media. Okay, I hope you have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you again very soon.